Hello and welcome to It Was a Good Run. I'm your host, Serena T. As always, this podcast features stories from our listeners. Stories must have a natural beginning and natural ending. Storytellers will then engage in conversation with me about their experience and will answer four questions. What does this story mean to you? What did you learn from your story? What do you hope listeners will take away from your story? And how was it a good run? Enjoy. Today, we are meeting with Selena R., a very special guest. Thank you for being here. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So, why don't you start off by telling us who you are, where you're from, uh, what your story is about, and why you chose to tell the story. Okay. As you said, I'm Selena R. Um, I'm actually your twin sister. And... um, What's the rest you want me to tell? I'm sorry. Um, just where you're from. I'm from here, from Rochester, New York. Okay. And and finally, just what is your story about and why did you choose to tell it? Um, my story is about a time when I was accused of a crime. And I am telling this story because it's something that has stayed with me, affected me. And I finally kind of come to terms with it where it doesn't make me so emotional so I'm going to tell my story okay thank you and once again um yes welcome in very special guest indeed so um at this point I will let you take it away okay uh this is the beginning of my story in the late 90s I was married young about a year and a half after high school uh it turned out to be a bad idea Um, So a few years into it, I moved to St. Louis, New York, where my mother had moved already, to regroup and figure things out, and also to help my mother. Um, I had been working in Rochester at a local beauty supply store, so I was able to transfer to the St. Louis, uh, Missouri location. since. Uh, financially things weren't looking great Um, I took another job in the same plaza at a shoe store where I got to be their uh, walking shoe specialist that tells you how long ago this was Um, but now I'm gonna focus on the beauty store Um, working there um, I didn't have any issues uh, because I came there fully trained I got along great with the staff, um, me and my workmates, uh, even got to the point where we'd get together outside of work, we went shopping, um, even drove to Illinois for my first visit to um, IHOP there. Uh, so like I said, we had good rapport and, and hung out and things were good. Um, so I was in St. Louis for just a couple of months. Um, about two weeks before my return to Rochester, uh, the beauty supply store was robbed. I found this out because I had uh, arrived to the plaza early to start my shift at the shoe store and walked by the store uh, to walk by the beauty supply store so I could stop and get a snack. 
and I saw there was seemed like commotion, lots of people coming in and out of the store. I saw police officers. I stopped in to find out what was happening and was informed that the store had been robbed. Um, I asked if anybody needed to chat with me, if everything was fine, because I did need to go back to work and they said no one needed me. And I just made myself available, said, gave everybody my location, I'd be at my other job. Um, I went on about my day. The next day I had a day off. I was sleeping in and my mother um, was up early getting ready for work. Just before she was able to head out the door, we heard a knock. Um, my mother answered the door as I was um, still in bed and there were two detectives at the door. They came inside. They said I needed to come with them. Um, at the time I didn't know my rights and that I could have um, refused to do so and had them talk to me right on premises. But I was nervous in any case and of course did what they said. Um, they wouldn't let me take a quick shower. Um, I convinced them to let me brush my teeth and did so, made sure I was appropriate and we left. Um, my mother asked where we were going and if she could come and they wouldn't tell her anything except that we were going to a police station. Uh, when, we, when they opened the door, um, there was uh, two other police officers that were basically guarding the walkway. And I just remember thinking wow i'm about 140 pounds and you two are armed and you need to bring extra armed personnel um just to get me and that probably was one of the things that really started making me feel nervous um sitting in the back of the police car actually gave me some anxiety i don't know about you listeners, but um, just the cage separating me from the officers and knowing that I can't open the doors from the inside was a little nerve-wracking. So on the drive there, um, my mind started going, are these real police officers? Um, where are they taking me? Um, being new to the city, I didn't know where anything was. And so I just started trying to look for uh, things that stood out outside the window to so I could remember where I was, where I was going, where they were taking me. It also made me think of a time in the past, in the 70s, when my mother feared for my brother who was being taken away in the police car and knew that they would hurt him in the police car. And so she chased after that car to make sure that he wasn't beaten. So I had that story in my head as, as we traveled. But fortunately, um, not long after, um, I did arrive safely um, to the police station. Um, I was taken to a small room with light colored walls, very bland, very plain. Um, and I sat at what I believe was a desk. Um, the two detectives 
kind of set themselves up in a good cop, bad cop um, way. They're both in their 40s, early 50s. Um, bad cop, as I'll call him, had dark hair and glasses. And good cop had blonde hair and none, kind of like in a movie. Um, good cop stuff stepped out while bad cop interrogated me. And I don't remember the exact conversation. I suppose some basic information of the crime was given. Um, they reminded me that I closed the store the night before and had opportunity to um, put this crime together. They asked me about very specifically about my actions, had I propped the door open, um, had I let anybody in um, that night because I knew I had taken the trash out. And these are such, there's the minute details that they asked me, there, there was no way I could answer. I don't know, had I accidentally left the door open and someone came in, you know, I just didn't know. Um, but I knew I hadn't stolen anything, um, you know, and then there were questions that I had that came up, like if the door had been open and we set the alarm, you know, wouldn't that have been a problem? Um, you know, so why are you looking at me? Um, but there at the time there was nothing I could do, but just go on and answer the questions as best as I could. Um, I was told that, um, the finger was pointed to me um, and I was appalled and terrified knowing who I was on the inside and what I felt I put out into the world with my words and actions it was just surprising to me um, and I wondered what evidence did they think they had um, if this was um, this had racial connotations that came my mind just because of where I was um, and some of the things that I had witnessed while being in um, St. Louis. Um, they told me that about $2,000 had been stolen and I remember saying that's not enough money for me to lose my life. That's not enough money for, you know, for me to risk going to prison and they'd say that seems like a lot of money to me. Um, you know, everybody knows you don't have any. And by this point, I was hysterical. I was bawling. I was crying. I was shaking. Um, I was convinced that they were going to put me in a jail cell. And I also was thinking about, you know, my family, my sisters. My sisters um, are a lot older than me. And uh, I felt like they put some effort into making sure that I graduated high school and I didn't do drugs and I had been fortunate not to be a, a teenage mom and I felt like there would be so much disappointment. I would be letting them down if somehow I went to jail. Um, and so now I'm, I'm crying, I'm ugly crying, <laughs> thinking I'm gonna go down for this. Um, and I just wondered if I'd be able to go home. Um, and finally, bad cop said to me that um, I could go home, but that he would yank me back from New York um, if he needed to or if he wanted to. And I said, no, you will not. I will stay here. I'm not going anywhere until this is resolved. Um, 
firmly, but still crying hysterically. Um, when they let me out of the room, um, I found that just like in 1970s, my mother had followed the police car. She had not gone to work and she was there waiting for me. Um, I went home and um, recovered for the day as best I could. Um, later that day or the next, I remember good cop calling me and apologizing, um, saying that he knew I wasn't part of the crime um, and he was sorry for what I had to go through. And that's how my story ends. Wow, a long pause there because I needed to take a deep breath and even gather myself together hearing that. Such an involved, really deep emotional story. Um, and you know, I have never heard this story in its entirety before. Um, have you ever even maybe um, gotten into the details of this with anyone else in our family about it? Um, I believe that I had a conversation with our sister Janet, who has now passed away, um, about it. I thought she might be the one to um, know what to do, being the oldest of our sisters. And um, she was prepared to make the trip to St. Louis mm -hmm. if necessary. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I told everybody to hold off, thinking that the company was going to help me out. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, just everybody has bits and pieces. But, yeah, this is probably m my first time telling in such detail to anybody. Okay. And out of curiosity, um, I, I know that you were wanting to, you told everyone to hold off. Um, I don't remember that part of it. On, from my experience and my recollection of it, um, and you and I are the youngest, so of the older siblings, other than Janet, is that the reason why you never, you believe you never really got into the detail about the story with them? Because you're waiting for something else to resolve? No, I think that I did, you know, at the time, just kind of share, share my story maybe with, um, I shared the story with my family, but I think maybe at the time I was just so upset and being um, the way our family is, you know, things kind of trickle down, you know, from one person to another. But from I the think, oldest to the youngest. Yes, or right. We always mm -hmm. share information mm -hmm. and I figured that it would just be taken care of because I was so far away. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I, I've given everybody the, the gist of it, but I just think that I was just hysterical at the time and it just hurt, mm -hmm. hurt me so much. Mm -hmm. And two, um, what our listeners don't know is that we come from a, from a big family. So right. there's nine of us kids, right? You and I are yeah. the last two to be born. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we typically, if something big happens, our older brothers and sisters would typically take care of it or someone else would kind of be in that, that role. So, so it would make sense that, you know, we might think if we just kind of, do what we're doing, things will eventually get taken care of. Um, part of the reason why I think I've never had this conversation with you or even heard the stories because I've personally been afraid to even ask you about it because I didn't want to have you relive the story or rehash anything. Tell me about what does it feel like maybe talking about it today? Um, 
it's really interesting that you asked me that because um like I said kind of my opening statement I think today is the day that I have really realized that it is not affecting me anymore I'm not I, I held on to it for a really long time and I was really upset and I've um even um a few weeks ago mm -hmm. I literally wanted to find the store manager mm -hmm. who I later learned pointed the finger at me and ask what why would you do that to me mm -hmm. and then I kind of realized that even though it was a, a big deal to me it probably wasn't a big deal to them they probably don't even remember who I am mm -hmm. and I can't stay stuck there I just kind of have to keep it moving mm -hmm. yeah um, and that is really a part of the story that I certainly hope that we could um, talk about too um, I, I feel like I could jump all over the places because there's yeah. so many points that you brought yeah. up and different things that we could talk about but I'm going to try to stay yeah. in a certain order and if we repeat some things maybe you can just clarify as we go sure. um, just to kind of um, let me stay grounded with where we are and kind of you know, hoping those who are listening can kind of follow the story um, in the same way that I'm hoping to be able to follow it. So um, you did give me a list of just sort of like bullet points that um, that point to some of the events that led to the story that you did tell. So I just kind of start from the beginning and just kind okay. of ask them those things as they come about. Um, the first thing you really mentioned um, was that you were leaving a relationship that wasn't good for you, that wasn't healthy for you. Um, so that had to be a huge thing to begin with and then sort of make this big move. Um, I think actually in the bullets you gave me, you used the word escape, that you had to escape from, from that. Yeah. Um, do you still feel that word escape applies? Um, sure, it's a good yeah. word. Okay, <laughs> all right. So, and I'm I'm just curious, yeah. just because when I hear language like that, I'm curious about just that experience. Um, yeah. You know, just wondering, do you mind just unpacking that just a oh, little bit mind. about having to escape from a relationship? Okay. Sure. Um, well, the relationship we were just kind of very mismatched as people. Um, I came from our backgrounds were so were so different. I was. You know, even though, uh, you know, my mother, our mother raised us um, by herself in the end. She had been married and divorced. To our uh, father. Right, to our father. Um, but we really had, uh, we were raised with certain values and certain expectations. Um, and I kind of married into a household where um, it was, everybody was, you had to fend for yourself basically um and um he was ir very irresponsible you know didn't always you know try to make sure there's food on the table and worked and just still very immature and i felt really obligated to be married at that time i felt that i was very obligated to be in this relationship and by the time that this incident happened i had probably been in the relationship about four years four or five years on and off and so the fact that I packed up and left to kind of find myself, um, let you know that I had kind of had enough because I had felt obligated to be married and live kind of a Christian life. Yeah. 
Um, so that just opened up a big door yeah. for us to talk about. Um, so, so, and you used the word obligated more than once. Tell me about that. Why did you feel obligated to be married? Um, we were, because we were raised um, in a Christian household. And, um, you know, we were raised to not have sex before marriage and things like that. And, um, you know, he was my first. You know, I did end up, of course, consummating the relationship. And um, I felt like, okay, you know, I can't live in sin. I need to, you know, get married. And then I figured, even though I'm not happy, I made this obligation, you know, to this person. I've made this promise to be with this person, so I need to find a way to make it work. And it just still didn't didn't work. Mm-hmm. So finally, I, um, you know, I got a, got away from it. Mm-hmm. That was good for me. Yeah, I agree with you. Yep. <laughs> and, um, you know, just to add some context, so, yeah, so we were um, raised in a really strict um, religious type setting. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly had a, I believe, loving family and so forth, but but um, we were raised as Jehovah's Witnesses, mm-hmm. and uh, you and I never went so far as to become baptized in that religion, which in that religion you're like official you're once right. you're baptized. Um, and we, you and I decided not to maintain that, that lifestyle or to um, stay connected with that religious organization. Right. Um, and so, but it does play a big role in how we lived our lives and what we did growing and up and even residual beliefs and absolutely afterwards it yeah. even affects us today yep and so my ideas about what you're saying and thinking back at that time absolutely right yeah. so you're told and you're you're molded there's a way of thinking there's this collectivist culture that's a part of religions like that and i and you know this is for another time another story but religion itself in general just the way that it's actually uh, prescribed and the way that it's it's organized if you will um so so yes there were tenets of that religion that that we were expected to adhere to and to follow and to live our lives according to and if we did not then we were you know the consequence was death right in in that religion if you don't do according to what that religion says how can you have what a Jehovah's Witness would say is everlasting life right so you can't you wouldn't be able to have that um, or or be seen favorably in God's eyes if you were doing things that that were um, in contrast to what their teachings were right That's so you being what age at the time um, when I got married I was 19 right so you started dating this person I think around 18 or 17 yeah. 18 mm-hmm. so an 18 year old haven't even started your life yet, not, <laughs> not knowing what life is yet, yep. yet being bound by yep. these ideas and these teachings and this type of upbringing. Yep. Um, and then you try to conform to that. And at that point, you know, um, you grew in that relationship enough to where you said, this isn't what I want. This isn't, this isn't where I'm going to stay. Right. And then made that decision. Yep. So to me, that is the... Um, part of growth I think in a young person's life where a shift often happens so for you to be able to do that and say that in your own head then it it, it to, to me that's really obviously it's self-empowering but but you made a decision for yeah. yourself that was your choice time, but I definitely right. did make a decision <laughs> yeah yeah and then yeah. I think it sets the tone moving forward because then mm-hmm. you make decisions you know after that 
for what works for you as yeah. time goes goes on. So, what um, was it like anyway? To I mean, just to make such a big move in the first place. You and I had never lived anywhere else before. Um, uh-uh. Yes, our mother moved, and then you did go there. But what was that big move like? Um, I think just at the time for me, it was just needed. It was just necessary. I think um, I kind of went on the, under the premise that, um, you know, my grandmother's passed away. My mom's there. Um, grandma had died. She died when we were 19 and yeah. And, um, we, uh, when I, when I lived there, she, I was in my twenties. Um, yeah, I was about 20, I was 24 and I was, um, I'm sorry that I missed your question. I'm, my guy's gone, but it, it was, I, I went under the premise that I was going to be helping out basically. And then when I got there, um, I knew that it was for me. Okay. It was for me as well. Did, did I miss that part? About well, I was just curious about what the, the move was like to to uproot yourself from where you always lived to okay, move to a new place. Okay, so I understand. Well, I knew I'd be coming back. Mm-hmm. I did. I knew I wasn't gonna be there forever. Um, I planned to be gone for a while, but I didn't have a very specific amount of time um, that I planned to be gone. I was going there, playing it by ear, but um, I knew I'd be back. Um, so. I guess it was kind of like an adventure and it was um I think I looked at it like I would have some relief from what I was going through and so that didn't make it hard for me to go and you said that our mother needed help what type of help did she need um I think that um there were just you know kind of lots of bills and things like that. I mean, she's for sure functioning. She was, she worked, she had, um, you know, a job, but, um, you know, I think that she may have been behind in a few things and, um, I thought maybe I could kind of help out, go there and work as, you know, she's, um, at that time she would have been in her fifties or sixties. And, you know, that's kind of the age when you start slowing down. Um, You don't want to work two jobs when you're 60 years old. So I figured I'm young, I'll go and I can do this. So there's a lot going on in this story. So you left a bad relationship and then you end up working two jobs. So, I mean, that really, it sounds like one hectic thing after another. Can you maybe just uh, talk about where your mind was during all this time. I feel like you left something that was really difficult and traumatic, but you were growing from that. And then you went to a new place and you took on even more. Tell me what, what how you were processing that. Um, it was definitely hard for me. Um, I did feel like I didn't have enough time for myself. I did feel like I wasn't um, as young as I was. Um, I 
did feel like I had um, was giving myself a lot of responsibility. And at the same time, I felt like I was also letting my mother down because um, I, we, I was isolated. I was very isolated. Um, and I would call home a lot in Rochester. And that's a lot of long distance. <laughs> you know, that was before everybody had a cell phone and cell phone plan. So it was regular telephone, long distance permanent. Um, you know, so there was a little bit of that going on. But I mean, I tried to, you know, I was always worried about money even while I was there just to, you know, get something from Burger King. You know, that was even hard. So it wasn't like it was an, an amazing, comforting experience in general. Okay. So was um, just, I mean, that small little thing that you mentioned, even about getting something from like fast food or something like that, was that hard because you didn't have enough money to buy it? Um, it was just hard because I, you know, I got my paychecks and I gave my mother, um, a good amount of it mm -hmm. and but then I also had to get myself to work um, where I lived there was no city bus there um, and there was someone that gave rides um, and I'd have to you know pay this man to pick me up and give me a ride kind of like a taxi maybe cheaper than a taxi but still I had to set money aside for that um, and I you know, pretty much had to, you know, feed myself during the day, you know, or maybe skip some things depending on how much money I had or, um, you know, I didn't have, you know, I just didn't have money for extras or even sometimes just normal things. Mm -hmm. It was just always scraping, always scraping by. That was before the days of Uber, for oh, sure. Oh yeah, that was before the days of Uber and yes. it was just kind of like, you know, somebody in the neighborhood that gives rides and... Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's how it worked out for me. So you said there is no accessible sounding like public transportation. What was the town like where you lived, the area? Um, it seemed a little um, suburban. Um, my grandmother had lived in a little small, our grandmother, excuse me, lived in a very small home that you probably can remember and like kind of a dead end uh, street a long time ago, a house that had been there probably forever, um, and nothing really nearby. And they wanted to build an airport, so they bought her out, bought her a new house, um, in kind of a, a nicer neighborhood than she'd been living in. Um, so the people were nice, but again, it it wasn't um, uh, you weren't close to downtown or anything like that. So I just walked through. It was just residential. Um, the highlight was that there was a, a small grocery store um, on the street. And when I got to be the uh, prestigious walking shoe <laughs> guru at the shoe store, I was given a pair of walking shoes. So I, um, so what I would do was take my Walkman. I'm pretty sure it was a Walkman at the time. <laughs> And I would um, take walk through the neighborhood and um, up just down to the corner and back, and that's what I could do.
interesting. Do you remember the name of the area you lived in? I don't remember. I don't remember the street. Yeah, I bet you do. Do you? I remember the street, but I was wondering if you remember the town. I can't. Start with an F. Yes. Know. Was it Ferguson? Uh, yes, I think it was. In St. Louis area. Yes, yeah. yes. And that's even a place that has come into uh, the news more recently mm -hmm. these, these years. So, yep. yes. Um, and so something else that you mentioned too, um, just even talking about this and just sort of the way that you processed it and things that you're doing and things that you did to really survive. I mean, what I feel like I'm hearing is a survival story. Um, and you were young and you said you didn't feel as young because I'm wondering, is that because of the amount of responsibility that you took on? Yeah, kind of. I, um, you know, I think I have done and still do a lot of things out of obligation. And I was, you know, I was trying to be young, you know, it was a time where I wore, uh, you know, I was had on like overalls and fun colored, you know, shoes and chains and uh, hanging off my wallet and stuff like that, you know, and, you know, I loved all of that stuff. And, uh, you know, so I was still kind of like a, a kid, but I just didn't have um, fun kid things on my mind. Mm -hmm. hmm. And then you also mentioned being very isolated oh. during this time. Talk about that a little bit. Well, um, you know, my mother worked a lot. She worked with our mother, excuse me. I worked a lot during the day. <laughs> Um, so she yeah, we do was, actually have the same right, mother we have the same and mom. father. And, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, she was she was gone a lot, and she also, of course, um, still had you know religious meetings to attend, and um, you know, I didn't know a lot of people at the neighborhood, but of course, you know, I wasn't having people over, um, and. You know, because again, I didn't really know anybody anyway. Um, I did on a few occasions. I was able to uh, hang out with coworkers. I think maybe two or three occasions while I was there. But I mean, I didn't have a vehicle. You know, so if I wanted to go somewhere, my mother had to take me. You know, I had to contribute to gas, um, and I didn't have money for that all the time. And um, there was nothing really nearby for me to just walk to and experience. So. Um, you know, it's a residential neighborhood, so you know, there's that's pretty much mostly just you know, families, and there just wasn't a place for me there. And also, I really did stand out, you know, being from New York, the way I spoke, and the music that I listened to, and my clothes, and that type of thing. So, I was felt like an anomaly. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting you mentioned your coworkers because I was always under the impression that you had formulated at least two solid relationships and you were very social and you were going out with your coworkers and being young um, when you were living away. And that was incorrect. So my perspective was not accurate. Right, I mean, they weren't, you know, I would speak to them, but um, again, being new, I hadn't, I just wasn't there long enough for these to be, um, for us to be close and real bonds. There were people that I knew and we got along at work and um, they were all talking about, um, you know, I don't know how they did it, but on our 
small, <laughs> meagerly paychecks, you know, they competed to get things, buy expensive shoes and um, uh, designer brands. And um, I was just literally trying to eat. Mm. So it's kind of hard to, uh, you know, bond with people when um, they seem to be able to afford to do fun things and you can't. So yeah, it's interesting. That is very interesting, especially since we're segueing right into the whole point of this conversation, which is you being accused of a crime that you didn't commit. Um, I mean, before we get into what I was originally going to start asking you, mm -hmm. do you think that your coworkers were living the life that they were living um, because they might have had anything to do with any of the money that was going missing? Um, interesting that you asked that because um, I think that my other coworkers um, lived with, um, you know, some of them lived with parents that could maybe take the edge off for them, you know, and they could um, divert more money to get in a pair of shoes or a polo shirt. Um, that's, you know, the only thing I can come up with. Um, but, you know, because we were all so young at the time. Um, but what I did find out um, after um, I, I spoke with the officers is that, and speaking to coworkers again, is that one particular coworker, uh, the next day, uh, after the robbery happened, um, had come to work and she and her boyfriend had new shoes and their car was suddenly fixed. They had money for that and um, a host of other things. They paid back a, a large amount of money they'd borrowed from the store manager. And um, the thing about that was um, this person never had money before, was always crying about money, just didn't have any, couldn't afford basic things, always wanted to borrow money. And so for the very next day for this person to be able to, you know, afford a lot of things and also have a key to the store, it stood out. So that would be the only person that would come to mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that yeah. makes sense. Worth the question. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, so getting into that. So this was two weeks before you were returning to returning home yep. um, that this sort of all took place mm -hmm. um, and to me that's always been interesting um, mm -hmm. that it was right before you were leaving and I remember speaking to our mother about it at times and she thought it was curious as well that you know of everyone that was there the finger was pointed at you and then all of a sudden you're leaving to return to the state of New York at that time and of course many people who live outside of New York State believe that if you live anywhere in New York, you live in, in New York City, that um, you are making a lot of money, that, you know, there's all these different perspectives just by saying that you come from New York. Yeah. And so her ideas, and she mentioned the perspectives of the people in that town too, especially during that time, mm -hmm. that, that she believed that was one of the reasons, if not the main reason, why you were scapegoated for this crime. Um, I do believe that was specifically planned for so close to the time that I was leaving um, because it would make it seem like I was trying to fund my way home or something. Mm -hmm. um, so that is something that I've definitely always held on to and, um, you know, that really mm -hmm. hurt me that somebody mm -hmm. 
seemed to specifically set things up to hurt me. Mm -hmm. so. Right. So you were an easy target in that respect. Easy, easy target. Yeah, yeah. So, so, I, so the story you told about the police officers coming to your house, to our grandmother's home, and confronting you the way that they did, and you um, growing more and more aware of how this is just not a good thing happening right now. Um, and sort of each step, sort of the police being there, then even more armed policemen with you, one single female there to put into a car, they're armed, they're intimidating, they're huge, they are um, really probably, I'm assuming, um, speaking in a really authoritative manner, um, mm. if not aggressive um, mm. in that moment. Um, and so, so when I picture this in my head, I picture kind of like, you know, these really huge, tall sequoia trees kind of <laughs> down looking at this one little like squirrel or yeah. like a child or something like that. Like, there's no match for anything like that. And so it's not necessary, yet you are confronted with that. And and also, too, I think that our upbringing, too, we're, um, we grew up being very naive about things. We were very sheltered to a lot Absolutely. of things, for sure. And so, and our belief often was, because we were taught to trust authority and so forth and do what they yes. say, and if we do what's right, you know, there's nothing bad can happen to us. Yep. So my imagination takes me to a place where you're being very compliant. You're probably being somewhat, um, you know, like, oh, let me just brush my teeth and lighthearted, sort of charismatic, maybe bringing them in to show that you're not a threat, kind of putting on those airs and kind of playing a role to kind of minimize even any kind of um, sort of, uh, I guess, aggressive behavior that you anticipate could possibly happen. but we've been taught, right? This is how we do things because this is what people do who follow rules. So as long as I do that, I'm sure I'll be okay. And yet that's not the way that you were received. Um, yeah, I, you are, uh, you hit the nail on the head with that one. I definitely was being as friendly as I could and compliant and, um, just doing what they told me to do. And, you know, I think, um, things were kind of okay until the door opened and I saw the other police officers out there and you know that you know just looking at my little self and like wow I'm outnumbered I actually thought we were all going to be in the same car me and all these cops and fortunately that wasn't the case but you know I remember saying in my head at the time like I'm five four and a half and 140 pounds and you have you know you literally have two extra policemen out here you know that could hurt me you know why do you all want to gang up on me and that's kind of how I was how I was feeling at the time and that's kind of when my concern was heightened yeah and such a heavy police presence for one person which we've already established um but even you once you're in the car knew you couldn't get out mm -hmm. um um and sort of being caged um to, I think that was your description too, but certainly what I'm, I'm thinking mm -hmm. of. Um, and then even thinking about 
you know, our brother who had an experience early on in his life um, with police and and the idea of our mother following behind him. I, I don't know if you know that story about how she sort of drove underneath. Yeah. So if we can just tell our listeners too, I can tell my perspective. And if you have a different one, please tell it too. But um, I'm not quite sure the events that led up to it. um, And I don't want to disclose his story here, but but starting from where they did put him into a police car um, and they went to our house, we were living in a different house at the time, and they uh, took him uh, to the police department and she kept asking, where are you taking him, where are you taking him? and they wouldn't tell her and i think at one point they just said we're taking him to the police department or something i don't know i don't think they even gave her that much and she was basically saying well you're not going to take my child without me knowing where you're going and so she got in the car and she drove she followed the police car when i spoke with her she says that they um they sped up a little bit um where they were trying to lose her but she stayed on their tail yeah and that uh, they got to the police uh, precinct at whatever point, and they mm-hmm. there's a garage that sort of opened up automatically, yeah. and then they got under there really fast and it was coming down, but mm-hmm. she slid her car under there really mm-hmm. fast and went in there behind them. Yeah. And they're like, you can't be in here. And she was like, if my child's in here, I'm going to be in here. And and she filed and every, did everything that she could to stay with him. And by the time they got to the elevator a police officer just said no you absolutely cannot do it and I think she insisted anyway and then I think they threatened her with we we will arrest you if you try to go even further so she had no choice but to let him go and then she met him at the top of the elevator or or wherever he floor he got off of she was waiting there Mm -hmm. and when which I don't know how she found it she must have Mm -hmm. insisted that they told her where he was going to land and when the elevator door opened, he was beaten up black and blue. Mm. So they did assault him on the elevator um, during that period of time that she stayed with him mm-hmm. to the time that he got off the elevator. Um, she says his his um, eye was, um, you know, I guess they had hit him in the eye. It was starting to turn black. Um, there are some things that just, you know, he was um, busted up in different yeah. places. And so he had been roughed up pretty good. And so when I hear that, I'm thinking, number one, you knew that story. So you're thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to be me. She knew this story because she had already lived it. And she's like, there's no way this is happening with literally my oldest child to one of my youngest children. And history repeating itself. And this isn't happening. I'm sure of it. And I knew speaking with her, she was quite traumatized, thinking I just kept trying and, you know, they wouldn't help me. So um, so that is interesting to say the least. <laughs> yeah, you know, it is it's interesting being in a position where you're wondering if somebody's going to take you to some undisclosed location that regular police officers don't even know where you are, mm-hmm. you know, and something happened to you um and you don't even know why or what's going on and bec- again because you are from another place and I never saw my mother behind them Mm -hmm. but um yeah she said um you know when I spoke to her she's you know I said oh how'd you get here from work so fast she said I never went Mm -hmm. and I was Mm -hmm. like okay Mm -hmm. you know so and I'm sure that actually you know side note just makes me think in her head Mm -hmm. like you said she's probably like no we're not doing this again right (laughs) Absolutely. And just to speak to our mother's character, too, right? So she was the type of woman who, you know, 
every no one was perfect but we did know that she loved us but the one thing she she wasn't going to do was let someone you know mess with her kids if if you if you think about that that yeah. was not going to happen um which i think that's where we probably get that from we are super duper protective of our kids super protective like protective and each other's kids absolutely and our family we don't we don't let any of that fly um we've and it doesn't even matter whose kids it is we also have this thing where we don't want anyone's kids being harmed or or hurt or yeah. or, or, or really anything that's the example that we had growing up but certainly our family's kids and obviously our our own but um but yeah so that is something that I think we all just sort of have because that was the example that we had we know we were safe if we were with her if something was unsafe we knew she was going to put herself out there to make sure that she could offset it for us or she took care of it before it ever came to harm us yeah so and I think that has continued and she never changed that behavior Right. Um, so thinking about that and then thinking about sort of reliving that time, um, when you did finally, um, see her and you asked her that question and she was like, I never left. Yeah. <laughs> what were your thoughts when she told you that? Um, you know, it just made sense. Mm-hmm. Basically mm-hmm. It made sense because initially I didn't think she was going to be able to find me. Mm-hmm. I'm like literally trying out a car right now. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. Like, We're here for she, this. I didn't think she was gonna be able to find me. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I didn't know where I was going. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of awesome. Yeah. You know, the first Absolutely. thing she just said actually is when I walked out there, and I'm still they let me go, and I'm still like traumatized, and she just kind of grabbed me. And you know, she did not hug us a lot mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that type of thing, and mm-hmm. she goes. You know, she goes, what did they do to you? Mm-hmm. It's the first thing she actually said. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, they didn't do anything. But I felt, like, humiliated. Mm-hmm. I felt Absolutely. humiliated. Mm-hmm. Um, because I knew that I I didn't do anything or even give anybody the um, a reason to think I'd do something like that. So I felt humiliated and embarrassed. And then I was kind of like, oh, okay. This job was important to her. She needed to go there. And she just didn't go, you know, mm-hmm. to make sure I was safe so I thought it was awesome yeah and we would really be doing a disservice to our listeners and to anyone who has encountered experiences with police um, without touching on the events of today correct Um, and this to me just shows how all the events that we hear about today in the news um, of those police officers who absolutely do engage in wrongdoing um, and we can argue that some engage in and some don't. Um, that is true, but it's neither here nor there for people who are experiencing these traumatic um, yeah. experiences. Yeah. And so when you say things like humiliated, embarrassed, that is what it feels like when you are accused of something that you did not do, when you are shamed publicly, yeah. and when you are emotionally traumatized as a result. You are humiliated, you are embarrassed, you develop post-traumatic stress disorder. There are so many different experiences that your body reacts to, contorts to, responds to when you are taken under such circumstances. And, you know, I have to say, just because you did bring up um, today's happenings, that I actually was not um, physically abused at all and 
like I said, I carried this for a long time and it weighed on me for a long time. It hurt my feelings for a long time. Um, you know, so I can't even imagine, you know, what people that do have physical encounters, I'll put like this, or are harmed by those in authority that are supposed to protect us, what that does to them after their actual wounds may have healed, but what are they carrying around? You know, because this was, you know, for me, this was um, a quarter of a century ago, mm -hmm. you know, so. Absolutely. And those are the wounds that people have and that they carry that you can't physically see. It's not a black eye that'll heal later. It's not a broken nose. It's right. not, you know, something that you can physically address and take care of. And it, for the most part, goes yeah, away, quote unquote, goes, goes away. Um, so these are emotional scars. These are, this is emotional turmoil that takes a whole lot of working through and growing through and coming to terms with and making decisions about because we have to decide that we're going to move on and live life and do the things that we need to do and decide to, to uncover joy in our lives to, and decide to have happiness when all of this is not only going on constantly in the background, but also having lived it firsthand. This is something that you can't just turn off. You can't say, I'm just gonna decide that that's something I don't ever have to think about ever again. Because even if you get to a point where it's not something that pops up for you every day, different events and different things happen that trigger that right. and makes you remember. And some people have to go through that process over and over again. So interestingly, when you said that she asked you, what did they do to you, which is something yeah. I never heard before that you said, she might've told me that, but I don't remember this, um, makes me think of a um, TED talk that um, a woman of color gave. She is married to uh, the person who directs the Star Wars movies. Yeah. Um, and she said that when she would go on sleepovers when she was younger, um, that her being a person of color, she lived in a um, suburban neighborhood where the population was predominantly uh, people who were are, are white. And during that time period, um, where she, and where she was too, um, there was racial un unrest and, and just where her mother came from before her, um, when it comes to race relations and so forth, her mother would often let her go, but she was afraid the whole time. And so the next day she would say, how were you treated? What did they do to you? Or something along those lines. So my question to you is, were the officers that you encountered, were they officers of color? Were they people who were white? What was, what, who were they? What were they? Um, both detectives were white. Um, and I have to say that um, when they opened the, door and I saw the two officers out front um, I I know that there were two but I only remember one because um, he was a black officer and I found it surprising you know at the time but um, when I did uh, the two detectives that uh, spoke with me were white and um, you know, I felt treated fairly by them mm -hmm. for the most part mm -hmm. sitting there. Um, I knew that they were doing their job, but um, I didn't know if it was going to turn out that way or some mm -hmm. other way. Right. And I would argue mm -hmm. 
just because okay. it's who I am. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, that, you know, well, before I, I argue that, when you saw the officer who was black, um, did you, were you surprised because of his race or, and he was a police officer? Or were you surprised because this was happening and this person of color who was a police officer was a part of this process? I was surprised that he was part of the process. Okay. And we'll get into that too. Yeah. Um, so now the people, the officers who were white, it's great that they, um, you know, you felt like they treated you fairly. Um, but to me that, so yeah, right. So then the fact that you said that, I feel like I want to open up that yeah. conversation. So the greatest thing about that is that, is that this is that part of the conversation where, where even nowadays we hear not all police officers are bad. So I happen to be one of those people's people who believe that wholeheartedly, that there are police officers who stand up against wrongdoing and who don't subscribe to ideas of um, racism and injustice and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, there are some who speak out against it, against other officers who engage in those behaviors, right. but then there are some who do not do that as, as well. So, so oftentimes people are protesting as the institution of, uh, of police and, and, and the, um, the whole foundation that it, it, it uh, comes from, mm -hmm. um, being tolerant of practices, even certainly some of those practices are extreme. And then those who do not subscribe to those ideas, who do not engage and, and um, try to say this is not okay to do. Um, so that's something that is, um, I just wanted to point yeah. out that you, your experience yeah. with this person of color, I don't know if he knew whether or not you were right or wrong. He probably didn't know you. Of course so, not. right. So of course he had no responsibility in saying, you know, I'm going to step in and let's not do this because he probably didn't know. Right. It's right? just, I need yeah. a couple of officers and this is what right. you do and they're detectives and you follow their, right. Absolutely. Um, their lead and it's and not his responsibility because he's a person of color to that's say so true. this other person of color must be innocent. She's a person of color because but, we know that's not accurate. Right. It's right. just that, you know, as you know, as a kid in my very first encounter with police, I was just kind of like, what is going on here? And to me, it did feel like because there were so many people there, mm -hmm. I almost felt like they're probably and and I think I remember him laughing. I think he was just joking with the mm -hmm. the other officer that was there. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, I I was um, really just uncertain and unsure about mm -hmm. what was happening. Mm -hmm. So I think that was just kind of my first reaction. Like, mm -hmm. what are you doing? Like, and why are you laughing? And and this um, is my life. Why are you right, laughing? Exactly. <laughs> and you know, you're just doing your job. But it was just kind of like, what you know, what's happening? And then. Mm -hmm. um, you know, watching the neighbors, I felt like he, you know, he was laughing, but it was drawing attention, the yeah. attention of the neighbors, and mm -hmm. so I kind of, I think I just zoned in on him, like, kind of, what are you doing? Oh, absolutely, and yeah. in a situation like that, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, just to think about it like yeah. that, I mean, I would be hypersensitive, that all of those was, things And I definitely think that's what was happening, yes. and as an adult now, and mm -hmm. of course, out of being out of the situation, mm -hmm. you know, I can look at it um, mm -hmm. through a different perspective mm -hmm. of reason and mm -hmm. having grown but just at the time everything was crazy for me right yeah. and going back to the part of they were just doing their job do you need to speak on that too so they were doing their job and that 
of course, they didn't know you, so they were sent to your house right. to pick you up and, and doing their jobs in that respect, correct. However, once you did get into the situation where you were being interrogated and you were completely traumatized by that experience, um, I, I, I argue mm -hmm. that there are ways to do that to minimize the trauma um, that I don't know that you were afforded. So to me, I don't know that, that I would subscribe to the idea that that was their job. Yeah. So didn't know if you had any thoughts about that. Oh, um, what I'll say about it is, um, you know, it, I wasn't, um, it wasn't like on Chicago, Chicago PD where they take you down to the basement and they put you in the cage and nobody knows you're there and you're going to tell them one way or the other what they want to know. Um, until you tell them the truth. Um, but like you said, I was hypersensitive at the time. And, um, you know, I remember him, you know, uh, bad cap as I call him just because he was very straightforward and very you know stern and telling me what he could do you know to me if he wanted to you know yank me back from Rochester when as as much as he needed to and um that type of thing uh you know but there was no there was no yelling and there was no accusation and you know being older now I know that I think he was really just trying to get information and get the truth and get my um, truthful reactions to things and saying things that may shake me up and make me um, uh, tell him what he needed needed to know. And I think because of my reactions, you know, being so, um, you know, so scared and so sad and, you know, uh, crying so, so, um, so hard, um, I think he, it let him know um, what he needed to. And, um, yeah, I have to say, I, I appreciated the apology. I don't know that everybody else gets that, you know, that people, that happens. So I appreciated that um, I was called and apologized to. So that was my next question. Okay. So good cop yeah. called you to apologize. Yeah. Tell me about that conversation. Do you remember um, it word for word? And I, if so, can you tell us? <laughs> um, I don't know if I remember it word for word, but I remember his tone and it was, um, you know, it was it was quiet and it wasn't, uh, it was genuine. Um, and I remember um, that uh, it, it was kind of almost like, made me feel kind of like, you know, wow, this girl is only, you know, probably the same age as, as one of my daughters and I'm sorry that I had to do this, you know. And so he kind of said it that way, almost like he was at a loss for words, but he, was able to, um, he, he didn't know what words to say, but he was just like, you know, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry about this. And, um, that's all he could, he could say. I and mean, he didn't, he didn't need to, but it was, it felt genuine. Why do you think he did it? Um, I think it's because, um, I was so upset. I think it was because I was just bawling uncontrollably. Like I couldn't get enough Kleenex. I couldn't get enough Kleenex and, um, you know, walking out the room, you know, I was, you know, I was upset, but I was, you know, but again, I just couldn't stop crying. And I think that it kind of resonated with him that, you know, look what we just did to this girl, you know, she, she there's, you know, it was obvious that I didn't take the money and he, they probably felt like we had to do it this way, but it was, um, it must have just been on his mind. He said, he, oh, I do know. He said, I called to tell you that um, you're cleared 
and um, we know you didn't do this. And um, no, I'm sorry. I just want to tell you I'm sorry. Hmm. That's right now just reminds me of the whole thing. <laughs> well, I hope it's good because yeah, that is it is good because I've always wanted to know what he said. Yeah, and um, and to me, that is no matter race or anything like that yeah. is really not a factor in apologizing for your actions. If you know you did something wrong mm -hmm. and you know you hurt someone, doesn't matter who you are, the ability to apologize speaks more to your character than anything else. Yeah. And the fact that he said that and you felt that genuineness and the tone in his voice that he sounded like he regretted their methods, yeah. is what I'm thinking, because mm -hmm. it was such... Um, such an experience for yeah. you um, that and they also picked up on that as well um, sounds like when you were sort of pegging the two good cop bad cop maybe he really was the good cop because he felt compelled to apologize and you could hear the genuineness in his voice mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering how that has affected him to this day I wonder if that affects how he continued to police moving forward because he was impacted by you in your reaction, yeah. and then when he responded to you, he let you hear that impact in his voice. So I wonder if that then went on to help other people who he encountered to be treated in a more humane way. Well, I you saying that makes me feel like maybe um, maybe when he does the interrogations or things like that, maybe he already had a different method and he had to maybe let his partner take over this time, you know, and, um, you know, I'm going to hope that he is that person that, um, you know, we are told to trust and, um, look up to and that we know will, will help, mm -hmm. um, anybody, you know, as far as law enforcement goes. And, um, he had to step aside that day and, he decided that, you know, but my heart says that I need to call this girl, mm -hmm. you know, per usual, since I wasn't in charge of this. So mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, that was the situation. And that to me is a very respectful like, quality. Yeah. Like, so absolutely. Um, you don't have to say it here, but do you remember his name? I don't remember um, any of their names. Um and that's one of the things that bothers me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I always think, you know, there must be a way for me to find out um, where this was, where this happened, and who brought me in, and um, you know, all those things. I have those questions. I like information. I have those questions, and I really kid you not when I tell you that, um, you know, this situation comes to my mind every week non-fail for the past 20 years so mm. maybe one day I'll be able to solve those mysteries the question of their names of, comes to mind of who yeah who what and where I don't know the mm -hmm. name of the police station mm -hmm. okay. that I was that I went to mm -hmm. um I don't know how um if anybody was ever arrested mm -hmm. you know I have no information hmm. so well fortunately 
in modern day society. Yes. We have what's known as the Google machine. You're right, you're right. And maybe we could research that. Maybe we could have a conversation later, a follow-up to see what we found out. Who knows? Okay. Um, so my question to you as we kind of start to wind down a little yeah. bit, did you ever go back to that job? Did you ever report back to work after that experience? Um, I did report back to work. I tried to um, get the company involved because I was still worried when I came home um, and felt um, treated unfairly and I wanted information and I wasn't able to get any. Um, but what I'll say is I, I believe that within two weeks of returning um, to Rochester that I left that job. Um, I did definitely realize that I would was not supported um, by that company and after having I what I'll call an adventure um, leaving town and being on my own I think I came back feeling a little bit of strong a little stronger and um, got my first uh, big girl job and just started setting my sights on other things I think that um, even though um, that it was kind of a hard time for me. I think it kind of pushed me forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And hearing you tell your story and me again, having this conversation with you for the very first time, yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of strength coming from you. There's a lot of mm -hmm. strength in, um, in your uh, presentation now, um, post this experience. I'm positive it's part of your growth. Uh, process that you've been able to do um, on your own and, and sort of go through this uh, process. Your your attitude about it too and the way that you talk about it is very humbling. Um, and you are, to me, I, I feel like you've come through the other side of it in a way. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of layers to the story in different oh, yeah. ways that we kind of need to go through things in life and there are certain phases. But where you are now, um, you have incorporated it into part of your own narrative um, where the way that you can tell it is really factual it's reflective of where you were and where you are now yep. does that sound that is correct very true okay so getting into um, the four questions we ask all of our storytellers okay um, if you could talk a bit about this story and what it means to you myself and certainly mm -hmm. the listeners would love to hear that talk about what the story means to me what does this story mean to you um reflecting on it now i think that um as opposed to before it was something that um it was like a little ball of hurt that i held on to um now i see it um as the ball that's in the catapult you know, that you throw, that you get through it, um, and uh, it, it lets you know you can handle some things, that you can go through some things, and um, it doesn't have to, um, doesn't have to hold you back. Mm -hmm. So, for me, I think that was probably one of my first um, real world adult experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what it is now, and I feel like now I can actually 
put it behind me and it's a story that I tell and that I can use to remember that I've um, I've moved I can move forward through things mm -hmm. and the next question I was going to ask you is you know what did you learn from your story but I think you just told me what you learned yeah. from it um, is there a particular lesson from it um, yeah a lesson that I learned from it was um, uh, know your rights mm -hmm. you know I may not have been um, so upset if I knew that I could um, have stayed home in a place that was a safe place for me and still um, done what the officers needed me to do. I can still tell you where I was. I can still um, give you factual information about an incident um, that I had no part of, um, but I can do it from home without, uh, it, it just would have saved me a lot of pain. I would have saved me a lot of trauma not knowing where I was going. And I think that's kind of, um, a tactic that's used but you don't have to agree to it and so that made me think what are the other things that I don't know you know so I'm gonna say know your rights so your lesson is to learn yep to learn what you need to know learn what your rights are because it protects you absolutely what do you hope listeners will take away from everything that you've shared with us today Oh man, there. I think there's a there's a few things. Um, um, one, don't take your family for granted, um, because when this happened to me, those are the only people that I felt I could turn to. Um, and even though you have rocky relationships with your parents, especially, um, there's going to be a a time when you need their strength, you know, and you know, know they're gonna drop everything for you. Um, so if things aren't good for you right now, work on it. Um, and um, know yourself, you know, and um, take each experience that you have, good or bad, and um, I guess now we're talking about one that's kind of iffy, bad, and um, uh, use it for yourself. So don't get stuck, um, use it to move forward. Great. And it seems kind of odd asking this last question, but this is okay. the main question of, of this podcast. Okay. How was your story a good run? My story was a good run because um, it, it brought me maybe not full circle, <laughs> but half circle, you know, or part circle to, to who I am. It, um, I, I, the job I had, I thought I was going to be stuck there forever. I thought that was going to be my life and that's all that I was going to be able to do. And after I had this experience within, um, weeks it almost seemed like blinders were taken off and um, uh, I I couldn't move I was got through the traveling part of leaving Rochester and coming back and I felt I was gonna be in that same rut when I came back home but after I went through what I did I could move and I haven't stopped moving thank you
that was a good run for sure. Yeah. So I just want to thank you again for telling your story, for speaking about your story and sending it out to the ethers and, and having the conversation with me. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we're literally the exact same age um, and we've never had this conversation, especially in this way. Um, it gives me a whole new perspective. It helps me see your story in its own unique way and of course likening it to today's events also but also just seeing it from the perspective of you know being twins it could just as easily as had been me or or you know someone else for sure and and certainly other people have had similar experiences but it made it more personal so thank you so much for sharing that for being vulnerable and for being a part of this conversation um and I believe that I certainly learned some of the lessons that you learned, and I hope by you sharing it that our listeners learned something too. Thank you again. Oh, thank you for having me, and thank you, listeners. If you would like to tell your story on It Was a Good Run, you can email us at itwasagoodrunpodcast at gmail.com. You can also go to our Instagram page at itwasagoodrunpodcast.com.